Today is, is not going to be preaching. Today is teaching. Um, I, have, uh, I have a burden, I guess, in so many ways for, um, <clears throat> for us all to become worshipers. Um, it's, sometimes I find myself sitting in church, and I'm just going to confess my faults to you for a second before I start, because this is kind of what, I guess, it convicted me, and then I, then I developed a burden. But I find myself sometimes sitting in church and the, the worship chorus is up on the screen and I'm clapping my hands and I'm swaying because I, I can't stand still and I'm just swaying a little bit and I'm singing the words. But I know if I stop for a second and think about it, I know that my heart is not engaged. I'm doing the action. Everybody in this room, we're all, you know, we're all clapping. We're, we're doing the action. But I have been there at times in my life where all of a sudden my brain kicks into a different gear and the words that I'm singing start to mean something. And I know immediately that I have gone from just standing in a service and, and acting out what I'm supposed to do as a professional Christian and all of a sudden I realize I, something has engaged and there is now worship taking place. And I bet everyone in this room knows what I'm talking about. Been standing there just clapping and nothing is going on up here. Nothing's going on in your heart. We're just rote, just from memory. And then all of a sudden I see that a, a line in the verse or I see a line in the chorus and it just applies to where I am today or it applies to my situation in life. And I start to sing it with a little gusto and my heart starts to, to, to kick in and my brain starts to kick in and all of a sudden the atmosphere changes. It's a, it's a powerful, awesome thing. And, and, and I know some, we, we all have, some people are worried about work tomorrow. Some people are worried about kids. And I, we're not always going to be every single one of us on cloud nine when we walk into church every day. But the goal is that we would always be worshipers. Always be worshipers. And so I want to spend this Sunday and next Sunday on what does worship look like. So what does worship look like? And I want to begin with the premise that worship of God has consequences. It's good if you do it. It's bad if you don't. Worship of God has consequences. It, it can elevate a nation. We saw that in the Old Testament many times. When a king would return to God, Israel would be lifted up. Judah would be exalted. When they would turn from God, the opposite would happen. We know exactly what happened. So worship can elevate a nation. It can also elevate a human life. It can elevate your human life. Failing to do it can devastate a nation. And failing to do it can devastate a human life. And since it has such consequences, it is extremely important that we know how to worship correctly. It's very important that we understand the concept. And I want us to spend some time this week and next week on this topic. Maybe even longer. I've got some other ideas that I made on this theme. Not necessarily a series, but kind of a theme. We as Christians are commanded to live lives of worship to our king. It's a job of a Christian. When you accept the title as a Christian, that is something you take on. I am going to worship. I'm going to worship. But there is something in our modern world that has taken away our sense of awe. Our, our modern world, we've seen everything. We hold computers in the palm of our hands. Computers more powerful than the ones that put men on the moon. 
in our hands. We've also seen men walk on the moon, if you believe it. There's satellites up there that I can make a phone call right now to China. It's amazing what we can do with our technology. And sometimes what has happened with our technology is it has taken away our sense of awe. And when we don't have a sense of awe, it's hard to worship. It's hard. We're a cynical world. Without a sense of awe, it is hard to worship God. And because of that, and the whole subject of what we're going to do this week and next week, because of that, we almost have to relearn the ability to worship. We've got to, and I'm not insulting anybody's where you are in your walk with God. I'm not trying to, to tell you that you're not doing a good job. That you're, I'm just saying these are some things that can help all of us become worshipers, better worshipers. As a lifelong Christian, I know that I have forgotten at many points in my walk that worship is a calling. I have been guilty of being a professional worshiper, what I was describing a few minutes ago. I know how and what to do when the song comes on. I know exactly, tap my foot, clap my hands, sway, and, and without being engaged. I know that I can do that. But what I'm talking about today is something that comes from the heart. So what should real worship look like? And that is what I hope to begin, only begin, to explain today. In some ways, what I want this, this week and next week to be is a worshiper's spiritual checkup. Just a checkup to see where we are in our worship life. And as I go through the list, there's going to be eight signs of real worship that I'm going to talk about. And as we go through the list, I want you to look at your own life. Be honest with yourself. Let the Holy Spirit lead. The Holy Spirit, I, I, we talked about that one Sunday. Not, it's been a while back. But it doesn't really matter the words that are coming out of my mouth the words that Brother Bruce preaches, the words that Brother Randy preaches, the Holy Spirit is what is walking in between all of these pews and it is communicating to every person what you need for today. So what I want is the Holy Spirit to walk through the aisles of this room and talk to our minds and talk to our hearts and say, you know, Chris, you're deficient in that area. That's a place you're not really worshiping. Or Chris, this is something you could do better. Or Chris, you're not doing that at all. I want the Holy Spirit to do that for all of us this morning as a checkup on how we can be better worshipers. And so I want to give you the eight hallmarks of true worship. And most of what I'm, I heard a lecture, and I'll be honest with you, from here down is a lot of, I'm copycatting somebody. Um, John MacArthur wrote a book called The Ultimate Priority. I don't know if you've heard of John MacArthur, but he pastors a very large church. Um, he's a, a great man of God. And his book, it, The Ultimate Priority, is about worship. And I heard a lecture on his, uh, on his book, and this is kind of what I've, I've drawn most of this from, or a lot of this from. And I highly recommend the book. You can read it further if you want to study this, this topic. But the marks of worship can be broken down into two major categories. We're going to talk about the first one today and the second one next Sunday. The first, the one we're going to talk about today, is the individual. This is worship related to us. Next week is going to be the corporate, worship related to the church. These, the ones that we're going to talk about today, are the things we do on our own in relation to God. And they include, and I'm going to list you the eight, so you can go ahead and hear what they are, and then we'll talk about them in, in further detail. Confession of sin, faith in, these are the things that worshipers do. Confession of sin, faith in God, confidence in prayer, bearing the fruit of righteousness, giving forth verbal praise, having content hearts, suffering without complaint, and bearing a clear witness. 
these are the eight things we're going to talk about that should be in evidence in the life of every worshiper. And don't worry if, if how, how I've started out kind of sounds a little academic and, and a little uh, murky, I guess, because I, we're going to spend a lot of time on it and, and we're going to try to break it all down and make it clear before we end this thing. These marks are also foundational to the second category, which we're going to talk about next week. And those are the evidences that occur within a congregation. These are things that, that we as a body would exhibit. For the congregation, these include God is glorified, believers are purified, the church is, is edified, and the lost are evangelized. So that'll be what we talk about next week, those four things. What happens in the congregation, however, is dependent upon what happens in the individuals that make it up. This church as a corporate body will never be the worshiping body it can be if the individuals who make up the corporate body are not worshipers. So it's incumbent upon all of us to decide, I want to be a worshiper, because then we'll make this place what it's supposed to be and elevating and lifting up the name of God. If the individuals are not worshiping, then the congregation cannot worship. This morning, again, we're going to start with the individual. Let's get a definition of worship, just so we'll all have this, this definition, this understanding of what worship is. Worship comes from an old English word, basically worth-ship is what it means, worth-ship. And it basically means you render worth to an object. You show what it is worth in your actions. The biblical concept comes from Hebrew and Greek words, which both mean to bow down or to prostrate oneself. The Greek word literally, literally means to kiss the hand. We've seen that in movies and stuff, you know, where you'd kiss the king's hand or something like that, or his ring. These are acts of homage or honor is what we're, we're talking about, worship. And they all add to our concept of biblical worship. The simplest definition that I could come up with, and one that maybe you, you might want to just keep in the back of your head the, through the rest of what we're going to talk about, is worship is reverence, honor, and adoration directed towards the Lord. That's what worship is. That's everything that we're talking about is wanting to give that to God. So our definition, I, I believe, is going to gain additional meaning as we, as we talk about this. What we do when we worship is we ascribe to God what we think he is worth. We state and affirm his supreme value when we worship. We put ourselves in a position of looking up and acknowledging the supreme being of the universe when we worship. We recognize that he is not like us when we worship. And the more we understand what is true and real, who God is and what he is like, who we are and what we are really like, and ultimately our great need because of that fact for a creator, then the deeper will be our worship of God. When we understand all that, our worship will become like rivers of living water. It will flow out of our innermost being. You won't be able to contain it. And ultimately, that is where we want to get to, isn't it? I want worship to just happen almost, almost without thought. Worship to happen. Our reverence, honor, and adoration of God will not just be some ritual observance, walking in here and clapping our hands and tapping our toe and swaying to the music. It won't be a ritual, uh, it won't be a ritual observance. What it will be is it will be a heart thing. It will be more than just because everybody around us is doing it. It will be, I'm doing it. I don't care if you are doing it. 
that's when I am a worshiper. Genuine acts of worship will change you. They will transform you from passive Christianity into actively living for God. That's a powerful, powerful thing. It will make a difference in every single aspect of your life. So let's look at the hallmarks of worship. I've already read to you the eight of them. And and so we're going to start at the beginning and we're going to start with confession. It's the first one. The first mark of true worship is confession of sin. There's many scriptures that lead us to this conclusion. And confession, actually, the, the word comes from a, the, like an ancient concept of to agree with. Confession before God is to agree with God that he is right, holy, and just, and I am not. That's crazy, right? But that's what confession is. You are holy, I am not. The proud will not confess. And God's word says he will oppose them that don't confess. Yet he gives grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5 and 5. In passages where people get a glimpse of God in his holiness, we find that they become very aware of their sinful nature. The perfect example, the greatest example in the Bible is Isaiah 6 and 5. The prophet responds, did I give you that one? This is the prophet Isaiah, and he's, he's entered into the presence of God, and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Next one. Did I give you the next one? If I didn't, it's, it's no big deal. That was his confession. He had seen the presence of God, and he recognized how unworthy he was to be in the presence of God. That's a powerful concept for us to grasp. We, when we see who he is and how high and lifted up he is, then all of a sudden I realize my sinful nature. And so Isaiah is confessing literally that he is not worthy to be in the presence of God. And so God, we all know the story, God arranged for him to be cleansed, right? He took the coal off the fire and touched his lips with the coal and it purified him it cleansed him so that he could stand in God's presence and then enter into worship but confession is primary in fact it must be primary because because it is the natural response of those who understand the nature glory and holiness of God when I understand who he is I must confess my own faults I must confess my unworthiness because I want to be purified so that I may enter into his holiness and into his presence. Psalm 66 and 18 says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I've got to be clean before he's going to hear my prayers and my supplications. If you're going to honor God, you must start by being right with him. You have to start in that place. First Peter 1, 15 through 16 stresses the need for holiness. But, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You be holy for I am holy. We've heard that scripture a lot the last few weeks. That means that the person who is made right by God through Jesus Christ, that person has been made holy through their confession, through getting at the gunk out, getting all that stuff out, and they've been made clean. It is through his sacrifice on our behalf that we can, as Hebrews 9 and 14 puts it, have our consciences cleaned from dead works to serve the living God. We can be cleansed and serve the living God. 
we just finished the Easter season, and it, I hope this concept is still fresh in your mind that we have been cleansed from sin because of that sacrifice. The word serve in that scripture I just read is one of the New Testament words for worship. Think about that for a second. Worship and serve in this context had the same exact meaning. It's also important to understand that confession requires humility. We don't live in a humble age. We do not live in a humble age. Mark Twain made the comment one time, he said, I was born humble, but I grew out of it. And that's our country. That's all of us some ways. That's, that's how we are sometimes. But without humility, a person will not accept and follow Jesus Christ. They just won't. And it makes sense intuitively, doesn't it? If I cannot find humility in myself, I'll never look up to anything greater than me for my salvation. I'll think I can always save myself. That's what I'll think. I'll think because I can't humble myself, I'll think, well, I, I got this. I, I don't need anybody's help. But it takes humility. 1 Peter 5 and 5 tells us that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He stated, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word for poor there means poverty stricken and destitute. You have nothing to offer. You have nothing to bargain with. And I am in desperate need. And that is how we come to God. We are in poverty. He has everything. The cattle of a thousand hill. And we're in poverty and we come to him because he has everything that we ever will need. And that's how we come to God when we're in that place. We need his mercy and then we receive it through his grace. And it goes right, it creates this, this amazing cascading effect. And all of a sudden, our faith in Jesus Christ builds and grows and becomes all-powerful in our lives. The proud, in, in, on the other hand, they want to make a deal with God as though they have something that he needs, right? I, I, like I have something that God needs. But confession begins with both the recognition of our true status before God and our absolute need of him. It's also we see God's position as the sovereign creator and the loving mercy he extends to sinful men and women through his son, Jesus Christ. We must also understand that Jesus will not cleanse those who, confess, who do not confess their sins. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, you're a liar. <laughs> he didn't say it the mean way, but I'm going to tell you what that verse means. <laughs> If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and we're liars. If we confess our sins, on the other hand, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I, I don't know about you guys, but I want to confess. I, I want to confess our cleansing from sin and being made righteous comes after confession. It comes after. You must go through that process. Confession then prepares us to truly worship and is an act of worship in itself. Because when I confess and make myself humble, I'm looking up. And it's an act of worship. The second hallmark is faith. Confession is primary, but a basic faith in God even has to precede that. Hebrews 11 and 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. However, faith in God as an evidence of true worship must grow beyond that initial understanding. 
You got to grow. We're, we're constantly, we're growing, we're growing. It must actively demonstrate the person's supreme honor and reverence of God by trusting him and his word. We talked about this a few weeks ago, months, maybe a couple of months at this point. We talked about that, that belief, then trust, I'm sorry, belief, then faith, then trust journey. And Abraham is a great example of this in Romans 4 and 18. I think I gave you this one, didn't I? I had so many scriptures, I only gave Sister Michael some of them, and I can't remember which ones I gave her. So I, that's why I'm asking, I keep asking. Romans 4 and 18 begins, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old. We've heard this story before, but it's one we need to pause and think about for a second. Abraham was not a young man. I, I, I'm 47 and I'm having trouble chasing around a two and a half year old. So I can't imagine what Abraham had to do. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, because she wasn't young either. She was not a spring chicken also. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Can you believe that? Can you think about that for a second? He was persuaded. He had faith. He was persuaded that what God had promised, God would perform. Let me put it this way. It, it, the positives are great, but let me, let, let me let you think of it in a negative term. To not believe God is the opposite of worship. To not believe God is the opposite of worship. It's irreverence. It's irreverence. 1 John 5 and 10 tells us, The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. Another example of faith in God as an act of worship is found in Daniel 3. And, and you're going to see something cool in this one. We all know about the three Hebrew children, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were told they must bow down and they must worship a golden idol or they would be thrown into the furnace. And they refused. And so we come to Daniel 3 and 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, I love that. I love that phrase, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. We know who God is. We will not, even on the pain of death, we will not worship anything else. And you know what? Y'all know the story. I'm not going to trick anybody or surprise you when I tell you God delivered them. They came out of the fiery furnace. God delivered them. And even the pagan king that they were supposed to be uh, in servitude to, that they were supposed to be worshiping his golden idol, he believed in God at the end of that day. So their act of worship by exhibiting their faith made a convert. Isn't that cool? Worship has consequences. Some of them are amazing. Most of them are amazing. God exhibited his power in their worship. Their faith in God literally became worship. The third hallmark of worship is confident prayer. Where there is true faith in God resulting in the true worship of God, there will also be confident prayer to God. Such prayers are entirely for the purpose of the glory of God. 
John 14 and 13 says, And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. First oh, yeah. John 5, 14 and 15 says, And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked. We know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Please note, very important, and I preached a whole message on this, that prayer according to God's will and for his glory are the condition of his promise to grant us what we ask. I have to pray according to his will and for his glory. It's not for my will and it's not for my glory. My prayer list is not an Amazon wish list. Does anybody do like I do and go fantasy shopping and just add stuff to your Amazon shopping cart? Like way more than you could ever afford. <laughs> it's like I just got so much stuff in that shopping cart. And then when I really want to buy something, I have to take it all out. But our prayer list is not like that. Our prayer list is not. I am asking according to his will, his desires, and for his glory, not what I want. I pray for things, but my understanding is that it's going to be granted only if it meets those two conditions. His will, his glory. Don't stop praying because you don't know what his will is. Keep on praying, but understand his will, his glory. That's important to understand. His will and my will are often a great distance from each other. I prayed, oh, I wish that girl would fall for me when I was a teenage. And I look back now and I'm like, oh, thank the Lord you didn't answer that prayer. Anybody ever prayed a prayer like that? God, if I could just have this or just have that. And then you, you're, as your life progresses, you look and you're like, oh, man, thank God for unanswered prayers. Brother Garth Brooks was right. Oh, man. Confident, mature prayer understands this and accepts this fact that every prayer is answered and granted according to God's will. That's a... I, that's some mature, that's advanced Christianity, guys. That's advanced Christianity because it's real easy for us to pray a prayer and then get our feelings hurt when it doesn't happen. Oh, I, I've been there. Uh, God doesn't even see me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't know where I am. All because God was like, I've got something better for you. I'm taking care of you, Chris. You trust me. That's an advanced Christian. And when I do it, it's worship. When I do it, it's worship. The number four hallmark is the fruit of righteousness. This is not exactly the fruit of the Spirit, but we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. It's kind of a broad category, but I think you'll understand it pretty easily. It is the fruit of our righteous behaviors. Jesus said in John 15 and 8, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The Apostle Paul adds in Philippians 1, 10 through 11, Approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of our God. God wants us to bear the fruit of righteousness, for by it he is glorified. That is worship. And it proves that we are true followers of Jesus Christ when there is fruit of righteousness in our lives. So what is the fruit of righteousness? 
Paul explains it in Colossians 1 and 10, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That may be one of the hardest commandments in the entire Bible. That one right there, that's harder than thou shalt not steal. <laughs> that's hard. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He is incredible. How am I going to walk in, in a manner that's worthy to him? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Lots to unpack in that verse, honestly. Walking in a manner worthy, pleasing him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We're really only talking about the bearing fruit, but there's a lot in that verse, and it probably deserves its own sermon one day. But I'm just going to talk about the fruit of, the, of righteousness right now. The part of the fruit of righteousness is seen in the righteous deeds that we do, and by them God is glorified. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 5 and 16 that you are to let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The fruit of righteousness is seen externally in our good works, but it comes from something internal. So our fruits of righteousness, the whole world should be able to see, but there is an internal change that happens, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. Paul defines it in Galatians 5, 21 and 22. We all could quote this one. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in times past, they are that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So those are the bad things. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith. That's powerful. Those are the things, if I have those things in my life, people will see the fruit of righteousness. If I'm kind, you will have no doubt that because you'll see my acts of kindness played out in my life. When you have the fruit of the Spirit, you will act differently. You will engage in righteous behaviors. These are the characteristics that God develops within us when we walk with him. And at the longer we walk with him, the more they should be evident. That's what's so awesome about this walk with God. There's a beautiful, beautiful description in Psalms 92, 13 and 15. And I think of my grandparents, both sets of grand, well, at least Momo Maxwell and Momo and Papa Max, uh, Momo and Papa Maxwell and uh, Momo Waters. Um, but there's a beautiful description found in Psalms 92, 13 and 15 of those who walk with God for many years. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will stand, they will still yield fruit in old age. They will be full of sap and very green. Isn't that cool? They will be full of sap and very green, even at an old age. And they will declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. That, I, I want that to be said about me one day. I hope and pray someone can say that about me one day. I don't know about you guys, but that's, I, if they could say that at my, my funeral, I would be a, I won't be there, but I'll be somewhere else. But if I could watch, I'd be a happy man. I want to continue to increase for all my days in declaring that the Lord is upright, righteous, and my rock. The fruit you bear marks what kind of plant you are. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 16, and 20. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes. Anybody have any evidence to the contrary 
of what I'm saying? Nor figs from thistles are they. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you will know them by their fruits. I'm about to say this next thing. If you've got your Bible and you write in it, if you have place, I have a place in the front of my Bible where I write down things that impacted me. This is something worth writing in your Bible. A German philosopher said this, and it is one of the, I'll just tell you in a second how it hit me. This is what he said. You show me your redeemed life, and I might believe in your redeemer. You show me your redeemed life, and I might believe in your redeemer. Let's park our car right there and talk about that. Because that's, that's powerful. See, the world sees fruit too. It's not just for all of us to consume amongst each other, come in the house of God and just eat fruit all day. It's the world can see it too. And they can see thorns and they can see briars. And the world can see bramble bushes too. But you show me your redeemed life and I might believe in your redeemer. That one hit me in my expressway driving style right square in the nose. I see some, see some worship coming back there. I, that hit me. I've I've done gone to meddling in my own life. (laughs) If my life doesn't look redeemed, why would anyone want to meet the man that I says, that I'm telling you did that for me? If I don't look redeemed, who wants to meet the Jesus that I say I serve? If we are redeemed, we need to act redeemed. That's the fruits of righteousness. The fifth mark of worship is verbal praise. This outward manifestation of those who truly worship God is found in the verbal praise that we give to God in our worship. A heart set on truly worshiping God cannot contain itself. Ephesians 5, 19 and 20 says, They will speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with their heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such praise, and it doesn't have to be sung, doesn't have to, whatever, but all praise, sung or spoken, is worship of God. Psalms 50 and 23 says, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. The example of the ten lepers is a great one in Luke 17 and 12, and it shows the difference between those who worship God and those that do not. You all know the story, the, the, word, the, the lepers, they came to Jesus asking to be healed. And God said, and Jesus said, go show yourselves to the priest. And um, they all take off running and one turns around and comes back. We all know the story, right? And you know what he tells the 10th one? Your faith has made you whole. Your faith has made you whole. See, leprosy, you know what it does is it makes like fingers and toes and ears and things fall off. I can be healed of leprosy and still be missing some digits. But that last one who came back to worship, his grew back. He was made whole because he worshiped. Because he worshiped, wholeness was the result, not just healing. You can be healed and not be whole. And worship made all the difference. 
And by the way, verbal praise is given when things are tough and not just when you got healed from leprosy. Not when it's just convenient. Many people fool themselves into thinking they are true worshipers of God because they get really emotionally involved in a worship service and they begin to praise God or whatever. They, they think that they have worshiped. But just singing the words on the screen is not necessarily worship. I said it before and I'm going to repeat it because it's important. Every one of us in this room knows the difference between clapping along with the beat of a good song and then the change when we begin to sing the words from the bottom of our heart. That's when worship begins. True worship is a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. It occurs when things are bad, when things are good, when things are happy, when things are painful. But in all times, it is a sacrifice of worship. It costs me something. The next hallmark, and I'm rushing through, content hearts is the next one. An internal mark of a true worshiper of the Lord God is a content heart, and this is why. It's, it's a really good way to gauge internally where you are in your, in your relationship with Jesus Christ. We are not to be like the world around us that complains about everything. Instead, we are to be people who rejoice in all circumstances. A mark of someone who truly knows God and their ability to trust Him in any situation is contentment. I was not a content person for a very long time. I was looking for bigger. I was looking for better. I complained a lot. I was trying to always peer over the horizon and see what was coming next. Never satisfied with what I had. Not for one moment. I could not trust that God had a plan for me. I had to constantly meddle in God's plan. I never felt peace because I was not content. Analyze your life and see if you are that way too. And if so, start to pray for contentment. And in that contentedness, you will find worship breaking forth. Here's, here's a really cool thing. Being content is not just a sign of you worshiping because you're, 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 you are, you're in that place with God where you're like, whatever you're doing, God, I'm okay and I exalt you. But being content has a side effect that's really awesome because you find peace. So contentment worships and gives you peace. The next to last hallmark of worship is the ability to suffer without complaint for righteousness' sake. 1 Peter 4, 14 through 16, Peter says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or evildoer, or as a troublesome meddler. So don't suffer, don't commit crimes, suffer and say, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus' sake. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. If we suffer for righteousness without reviling, getting angry, etc., then we give glory to God. All of us Christians should be prepared, especially nowadays, to suffer for God's kingdom. Jesus told us in John 16 and 13 that in this world we will have trouble, but he will give us his peace. He has overcome the world, and there is joy in suffering for his name's sake. I don't actively seek out suffering. <laughs> Just being honest, I don't seek it out. I'm sure you don't either. But those who bear it and those of us who may have to bear it for the sake of Christ are worshipers. We can become worshipers in our suffering. The last sign of a true worshiper is that your life is a clear witness. By that I mean that you, your actions, your behavior, and your conversations are a clear witness to who God is and what he has done. God is always glorified when we bear witness of him. 
Many of the Psalms, they center on thanksgiving and praise to the Lord for who he is and all that he has done. But David almost always includes in that praise a vow to proclaim the name of the Lord and his goodness so that God may be glorified. So he's given Psalms of thanksgiving and worship and all, but he's also saying, I will proclaim the goodness of the Lord. And that's what we do when we have a clear witness Your own witness to others is an aspect of your true worship of the Lord. Because you believe it, you bear witness of it. Your light shines. Your light shines so that all men may see that you're his disciple. This is not an exhaustive list of all the signs of a a worshiper. I'm sure there are many more. But I wanted most this morning to provoke you to think about your own worship. I want you to think about your own worship for a moment. A heart that worships should include all of the eight things I listed. Do you exhibit all of them? Do you exhibit most of them? Do you exhibit none of them? (laughs) I dare say we all could use some work. As I went through this, I was like, yep, I need to work on that one. I need to work on that one. I'm doing that one decent, but I need to work on a couple. I dare say we all could use some work. And they also give us much to think about in our own personal worship of God. It's not just when you walk in here on Sunday morning or Wednesday night and the, and the band is playing. That's not just worship. Worship is everything else that happens outside the doors of this church. And in fact, some of those things are the ones that may be the most impactive of other people. Because if I bear fruit of righteousness, if I'm a clear witness, then souls will be saved people will see that I am bearing witness. A true worship of the Lord God, the creator of heaven heaven and earth, is not something that occurs just on Sunday morning when we all get together. It must always be an active, all-consuming, never-ending pursuit of God. That's what worship, it's never-ending pursuit of God. And as the worshiper gives his life to the glory of God, he discovers a rich resource in God. Oh, a resource of joy and of power and of love and meaning that is not available to those who do not worship. You have a resource that other people do not have, that most of this world does not have, because you are a worshiper. The life that honors God is a life that God will honor When we honor God, he will honor us. So let us strive today when we leave this building, because you don't have to wait till tomorrow to shine the light. So let us strive when we leave this building today, even when we're shaking hands after this service is over and hugging necks, let us strive to show forth those eight hallmarks of what worship can be in our lives. Show them to each other. You can practice on each other. We're all, I don't care if you fail. I'm a, we're going we're gonna to get better at it. Let's just practice on each other for a second. But then let's also take them to our place of work. Let's take them to our unsafe family members. Let's take them home to our children who last time they saw me, I was screaming. I, that, that one's personal. <laughs> really did that. <laughs> let's, take these, let's take these to the places we go. And these eight hallmarks of worship, let them just become where they flow out of our innermost being and the world will not help but be able to see the Jesus in us. Let's give God praise. Let's give God thanks and let's give God worship.